what is money? Money is a social technology. I think suffering is generally underrated because you suffer for a reason, you don't suffer for no reason. So we were talking about the move towards a cashless society and how you know you have lots of reasons why that might be a good thing. Is it appropriate for grown men to ride scooters? I bought a glass of wine in Chamonix. With Bitcoin? With Bitcoin. I'll end by saying, winter is coming. Well, hello everybody. It's uh, It's been a while. This is Dan Denning at Capital and Conflict. Uh, the podcast has taken a hiatus for a while. We've got... I've had some other projects on the on the boil here, so I've had to step away from recording the shows. But I had a guest in today. He dropped in all the way from Australia. He's here for the summer, my friend Vern Gowdy. Vern uh, and I started working together probably, uh, I think it was probably three or four years ago. And uh, since then, his his projects and his publications have taken off down in Australia. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, whether cash is an investment position and what kind of cash you should own and a debt deflation. And then for those of you who are interested in the idea of family wealth or family offices, sort of how to manage your money when you have children or grandchildren, how to teach your children or grandchildren about money, about work, about what wealth is, Vern has been doing a lot of that work. So I think you'll be interested in that particular conversation. It's a good one, and it lasted for a while. So I was, it was good to see Vern, and it was a really good conversation. Alex Williams then uh, joined me, so you'll hear from Alex first. That's a shorter segment. And Alex, as you know, works uh, on Money Week magazine. But this week we talked mostly about mining investments. Alex on the side, he sort of moonlights as the global mining investor. That's a publication you can also find online. But Alex was in Canada last week on a trip to an iron ore mine in Labrador owned by an Australian who bought it at a bargain basement price. So we talked about the mining industry, and I think the fact that we talked about it is probably good because I realized this week that I wasn't even thinking about it. And that's one of the points we discuss is that that's the time you really want to force yourself to pay attention to whether or not you can buy assets at a really cheap price because you're not competing with anybody else because nobody else is thinking about them either. So it, it requires that you do a sort of Jedi mind trick and force yourself to pay attention to the things that are in the back of your mind. Anyway, we didn't really talk about two mental tricks much. We talked about uh, anthracite coal, lignite coal, iron ore, thermal coal, all that good stuff. So those are the two main segments. I didn't really have much to lead with uh, that I wanted to spend too long on, but there were two things. Uh, one, the Bilderberger Group is meeting this week. And uh, where are they? They're in Dresden, in Germany. They've been meeting since 1954, June 9th through the 12th. So they're probably meeting right now as I speak. And I get emails about this every once in a while, so I thought I would bring it up. That's that's the reason I brought it up. You'll find a list of people who are invited, some of whom you'll know, some of whom you'll never have heard of. But the question I always get is, is well, there's a lot of them, but it, the version of the question is this. Is there a secret cabal 
of elites who are running the world according to a plan which may or may not include you know some mass extinction of people or at the very least control one world currency one world government you know there's there's a lot of versions of this idea around and you know what i don't know that it really matters i'm not going to cop out and not take a position i would say that these things are distractions. When, when it's in the press and in the public, it, it's not because we live in a modern age with, with things that are harder to hide. You can hide stuff today if you want to. You just have, just have to work harder at it. But, you know, if it's a secret society that everybody knows about, it's not a secret society. It's just a group of people that are pompous enough to get together and think that they're going to create a blueprint for how the world should be. Now, granted, these are people who have a lot of influence in politics, public policy, corporations. So, you know, I'm not saying the conversations don't matter, but are they the people who are really setting the agenda? No, I don't think so. Are there people that are that are doing that? Well, I don't know about that. That's a much more interesting question. And uh, I would just say this, though. You, one of the reasons I believe you see people, especially in the Western world, who are so unhappy with politics, identity politics, and, and the choices they have to make when choosing either party leaders or presidential candidates in the U.S. or in Australia, who's going to lead the Liberal Party, who's going to lead the Labor Party, is people don't really see that much difference any longer between the political parties. What they see is a massive difference in the way political, financial, entertainment, and media people live and earn their money and the rules they make for the rest of us. That There are just two different worlds. There's the world that exists in Davos and exists in Dresden this week, wherever the G20 meets, wherever the World Bank is having a Congress, wherever the IMF has a meeting, you know, whenever there's a G20 summit. These these are small groups of transnational, progressive, connected people who are in and out of government. They move in and out of government. They work in the private sector and they get good government jobs and vice versa. And they've created a whole superstructure and put it right on top of the real economy. And they've burdened the real economy with rules and red tape and taxes and massive penalties and punishments if you violate those rules. And of course, they're so complicated and so many of them that it's nearly impossible to not break the law these days. And then then you get penalized for doing that in some way. That's why people are angry, among other things. There, there are obviously more economic reasons. And then there are probably some reasons that are related to the immigration and to the police, the justice system. But I think it all comes down to, to having two sets of rules. And for ordinary people, the belief that playing by the rules and working hard being responsible and 
living within your means and, and doing all the right things, that's not enough anymore. Your success isn't determined by those things. It's determined by who you know, what school you went to, whether you get a job with the right investment bank or whether you're connected. It's not merit-based, and that angers people. That's my view on it, though. I don't, I don't really know what angers people, so I should say that. But are the Bilderbergers pulling everybody's strings and controlling the world? No, but, but are there people that are above the law or think they're above the law and also who make the law or write the laws that the lawmakers vote on? That, I would say, the answer is clearly yes. And uh, one other point, as a subset of that group, This is a story I've been writing about a lot in Capital and Conflict. But today, as I'm recording, this is on a, what is today? Today's a Thursday. This is from the uh, Newswires. Ten-year UK guilt yields set a new all-time low, 1.222%. I'd written earlier in the week that UK guilt's 30 years and 10 years had never been this low since the incorporation of the Bank of England in 1694 and the issuance of public debt. That is a long time for bond yields to be this low. We live in a bizarre world. I don't know how long it'll last. However, German boons, 10-year boons, also set a record low yield of 0.035%. And even U.S. 10-year treasuries 1.672%. So there's not a lot further yields can fall. They can go negative if the central banks target them. And so there's some upside for bonds. But I've started to take the position uh, that Charlie Morris from the Fleet Street Letter and Tim Price have both taken that, man, oh, man, there is not a lot of upside left in bonds. And as I mentioned in today's Capital and Conflict, uh, this is a quote from Russell Napier from earlier this year. When you have bonds and equity returns correlated, rather than being negatively correlated, so rather than not having any relation to each other or moving in opposite directions, but moving in the same direction, and both are stretched, and by stretched I mean bond prices probably can't go up that much higher, and stock prices, although not expensive, expensive compared to 2001, perhaps expensive compared to the ability of companies to actually increase earnings in a very low growth, low inflation world. Well, what do you do? Russell Napier's point was, if your savings are locked up in the stock market in a pension fund or in direct share investments, it is not a savings account. And it is very difficult to see how both those asset classes will go a lot higher for the rest of the year. So what asset allocation strategy makes sense if your two main assets, not including cash or commodities or property, are correlated? And in fact, what happens if all assets are are correlated? There is no negative correlation left. Is, Is gold, is it negatively correlated? Is gold outside the financial system? That was another point made by another analyst, who I think it was from J.P. Morgan, that part of what you're seeing in the long term is a dis- market discussion of what is the best, lowest risk form of collateral in the financial system. Is it cash? 
Is it gold or is it government bonds? You know, another way of looking at it is what's the, is there such a thing as a risk-free rate of return? In a low interest rate world, it doesn't really matter, right? The, there's no carry cost for gold uh, or relatively low compared to uh, bonds that don't yield anything. So, you know, gold doesn't yield anything. Bonds don't yield anything. Interesting debate. <clears throat> I'm thinking about it because I've been working on a letter I'll send you soon, which will invite you to this year's Money Week conference. And Alliance members will have seen this already. It's I think we've had about 30 or 40 people sign up. There are only 300 tickets available this year. We're having a much smaller event. The event is on October 3rd, which is a Monday. It's here in London. It's at Bishopsgate, uh, 155 Bishopsgate, I believe, on Liverpool Street. So a smaller group. It's a one-day affair, and we are going to focus on a theme this year, and the theme is the end game or the reset of the monetary system that you... You've seen variously uh, people advocate for uh, debt deflation, which lasts for many years, Japan style, and the correct investment strategy for a world in the throes of debt deflation. And you've seen other people argue for Weimar, 1920s Germany, 1921 to 25, where self-belief belief in money, belief in currency, belief in bonds evaporated or more more accurately went up in flames and not only was purchasing power lost but a lifetime of wealth for a generation of people was utterly destroyed. Now in some ways it's probably fair to ask whether it matters how your wealth is destroyed, <laughs> whether it's inflation or deflation, if there is a system reset on the monetary system, then what do you do? You know, do you get your money out? How do you do that? Is there a strategy where you preserve your money? Is there thing? Are there things that go up, or should you even worry about it? Like, is this the sort of thing you can actually plan for? Is it like trying to plan for a meteor strike? You know, if it's an extinction event for paper money or certain type types of paper money. Well, whatever. We can't do anything about it, so we might as well enjoy it while we have it. You know, that's a, I would say it's a valid view, but it is a view. So we've put together a panel, a program of people to speak on that subject. And some of them have different views. Some talk about gold, some are debt deflationists, some are inflationists. And uh, it's a great panel, really. It's, it's all British investors, uh, one American, not including myself. But fewer speakers focused on a theme, a theme that we think will be the critical issue for your investment returns in the next five years or longer. And if not your investment returns, then certainly the preservation of your capital, the capital that's at risk in the markets every day. So it's probably not everyone's cup of tea to sit in a room and talk about monetary policy, hyperinflation, deflation, Bitcoin, gold. Uh, debt, Weimar, Japan, helicopters. But there will be some very good food, some very good conversation, probably some alcohol, if that's your thing, after the debate, and uh, and some quality discussion. Really, uh, that's what I'm hoping to do, is have a day where there's some quality ideas 
and it's thought-provoking, and you can walk away from it uh, having an idea of what you want to do for yourself, for your business, for your family, and you've enjoyed the day. So uh, if that sounds good to you, uh, keep your eyes peeled. I will be telling you more about that shortly. In the meantime, I've rambled on long enough. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan Denning from Capital and Conflict. And to kick off the show, I have Alex Williams from Money Week. And following that, I have Vern Gowdy from Gowdy Family Wealth and the Gowdy Letter. Enjoy the show. And if you have any questions for me, send them to daniel at moneyweek.com. And I will reply if I can. In the meantime, we'll be right back after this short break. The Capital and Conflict podcast is brought to you by Money Week Research. For more news, analysis, and insights from our team of analysts around the world, visit capitalandconflict.com. Okay, uh, back to the show. First up, first guest, long time, hasn't been in for a while. Mostly my fault because I haven't been doing it. Alex Williams from globalminingobserver.com. Yeah, indeed. And Money Week. And Money Week. Um, All right, so last time we were here, you agreed to... Well, we had the new format where you could talk about whatever you wanted to do, which I'm going to let you do in a minute. Yeah. But I want to read you a couple things. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot. But I I realized today when I went to lunch that I haven't even been thinking about commodities. I've just been buried in trying to figure out what's going on with interest rates, you know, British interest rates at all-time lows. So lots of commodity story, lots of Brexit stories, lots of focus on fixed interest. No one is really thinking about commodities. Probably you are. But... But generally, the press isn't paying attention to them. And that's usually when you should be yeah. because cause everyone's ignoring them. Yeah. So I thought, well, let me look and see what people are saying. The only thing I could find was this um, – I don't know who this guy is. Adam, Adam Sarhan of Sarhan Capital says, Nearly every commodity market in the world is headed for a new bull market. He sees several factors supporting his view, such as a weakening U.S. dollar and – uh, blah blah blah, OPEC. Yeah, so you know nothing, nothing terribly interesting. But he, the last issue I saw of Global Mining Observer, which was in, it couldn't have been in April, was it? Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's like two months ago. Um, <laughs> maybe it, maybe it, six weeks. All right. So it's a story about Peabody Coal. Yeah. Uh, ch- yep. Declaring Chapter Eleven bankruptcy, yep. which seemed like the sort of thing that happens at the bottom of the market. Yeah. And then you had a lead story on gold, uh, and there was a m- speech at the Melbourne Mining Club by the yes. CEO of Franco Nevada. So anything yeah. to say on those before you go into your well, own? Well, David, Har- yeah, David Hartcall, the chief executive of Franco Nevada, he makes a very interesting point that gold, you know, obviously led the um, commodity markets uh, on, the, on the downturn, so gold kind of cl- collapsed before everything else. And um, gold has most definitely made a sort of positive break higher. So the optimistic interpretation is that um, gold is again is is going to lead the rest of commodities out of the market, and so mm. you know gold's now twelve fifty. A lot of the miners have rallied significantly. Everyone's sort of congratulating themselves for for buying uh, stocks which have sort of doubled in the last six months. As you do, as you do, and uh, the so yeah, the optimistic take is that then iron ore and copper and coal will follow them back up. Well, what do you think about that? Because I, I've t- I've been talking about the gold story with Charlie, and we haven't been talking about it as a commodity story. We've been talking about gold as a interest rate story or yeah. a money story. So yeah. not so much about the fundamentals 
improving in the mining sector, especially in the gold mining sector, just things happening with the dollar and interest rates. Yeah. Is is it is gold behaving like a commodity right now or like money? Uh, I think gold, in my interpretation, definitely that gold is being driven by interest rates. So the negative interest rate story, as soon as, um, as, soon as we really sort of started plunging, in, negative interest rates have been like a sort of theoretical concept on the table for a while. But now we're sort of central banks are proactively um, using it as the next sort of gun in the armory, then in the arsenal. Um, they, it's become a very real story, and I think, and that what that has been that is that, that coincides exactly with when the gold market sort of turned and bounced off ten fifty, and since then you know it's up to twelve fifty. So uh, yeah, I think I think negative interest rates are definitely driving driving the gold price. Now, are, I know you have you followed up on the miners that you recommended in December in the magazine because you wrote yeah, the so cover story about yeah primarily gold. yeah we t- said that the that 2016 would be a st- you know as we sort of near the bottom of the cycle um, that the you'd get a sort of a bit what Rick Rule calls a bifurcation in the market um, so you get a greater divergence between the strong and the weak companies. Um, and that the companies that have made it this far into the cycle without sort of going under or having to sell off assets of the bottom market would start to get sort of boisterous and start buying other people. Mm. So um, that is beginning. And also looking at the Investec have a mining clock, which uh, sort of tells you where we are in the cycle. And um, we are very much at that point of we're beginning to see sort of cash acquisitions at the bottom market, people opportunistically taking out assets and People, you know, kind of looking, the companies which have got this far are looking, f- uh, you know, have now have an eye on the future, whereas before everyone was just simply trying to put their helmets on. So is this is this a recovery in the shares or in prices for, for commodities? Uh, there hasn't really, there hasn't been, I mean, iron ore's bounced up a little bit. Uh, coal has, hasn't moved much. I mean, it's more... I think it's slightly more. There's a, a bit of a soft el- a sent- sentiment aspect in terms of, you know, a company like Rio Tinto, which has obviously been under a lot of pressure with its balance sheet. They had to cut their dividend. Um, the you know, when, as long as the iron ore price was falling and kept falling, and obviously, you know, when you're in a four-year um, down market, there's no knowing. Um, how low it would go. So like $190 per tonne, people would have been astonished if you told them it would go down to 50 or whatever. So then people start thinking, well, you know, the, the, whole, the whole industry and the whole market gets trapped in this um, right. sort of, in the, well, looking at the headlights, kind of thinking how, how bad could it get? And so, you know, if you look at a company like Rio Tinto at that point, even though they're obviously a very strong group, they were still kind of on the defensive. Whereas, um, you know, as soon as iron ore ticks up a little bit, people get that confidence and suddenly they start thinking, well, we've seen the worst and they've started buying back debt um, and, you know, you get you get people looking towards the future. And there's one very interesting story is that possibly uh, Glencore and BHP are thinking about um, buying Anglo-American's coal assets in Australia. So mm. Anglo-American obviously is the major which has come under the most sort of pressure and they're just really trying to th- still trying to sell any assets they can. Glencore and BHP have been the two are the two dominant players. BHP is dominant in coking coal, and uh, which is sort of high margin, and Glencore is dominant in thermal coal, which is much lower margin. Now, for people who are not familiar with the distinction, 
Can you explain the difference? Yeah, so coking coal is basically used in to make steel. Uh, you need a very high temperature. So coking coal is basically is just a better quality of coal. So it burns at a higher temperature. So to make steel, you need an extremely high temperature. So you used high quality coal, which is called coking coal. To um, if you've got some fairly crappy South African coal or whatever, you can which tends to be browner rather than black burns at a lower temperature you can just use that to um generate electricity lignite is that what they call it well I'm, I'm trying to remember <laughs> you looked at me like i had two heads anthracite that's yeah, what they yeah. call the the really like yeah anthracite the rock is the that best. burns that's the coal in pennsylvania western pennsylvania yeah yep. and in, in wales oh really i didn't yep. know they had it in wales yeah so it's just a, it's just a geology thing some some coal deposits are just higher grade exactly but yeah. that means that they have more energy content or they, they yeah high calorific value yeah exactly okay so the better yes yeah, so it's just a quality uh, it's just quality measure but Glencore and BHP have both um, absolutely flooded the market and crushed the market and crushed prices and so superficially they've been on they've kind of suffered with the coal price but if they were to go and do a major acquisition together and go and buy, say, Anglo-Americans coal assets in Australia, that would be very interesting because then suddenly it goes from, you know, Glencore and BHP suffering from a low coal price. If you look at it on a sort of 10, 15 year view, it's actually quite savvy because arguably they've sort of flooded the market. They've crushed the weaker producers, scooped up all the assets at the bottom of the market, and then you're off to the races. Now, are you saying they're considering doing that transaction in tandem, like as partners, or are they competing with one another? On yeah, the speculation is is that they might double up. Why would that, uh, that sounds unusual to me, is it? And if if it's not, why would why would they prefer to do it that way, just to Well, Glencore, um, BHP already partner up, they're, all their coal, all their cooking coal is held in a partnership um, with the Japanese. Mm. So, and um, Glencore also like to have they like to partner up as heavily as possible, essentially because they don't like paying up front for assets, which one can understand. So they would always rather um, share the capital, uh, share share the cost of buying an asset with pretty much anyone. Do they have as much operational experience as BHP? I've always made, had this idea in my mind that BHP is probably better at operating mines, and Glencore is better at investing in them and owning them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That would definitely. That's definitely the the perception. The um, Glencore, Glencore's main interest is in trading the assets. So mm. they don't really care about who owns the mine or who operates the mine. They want to um, be able to trade okay. the product. So, I mean, if they can get BHP to buy an asset and they get to trade the coal, then that's perfect for them. Right. So do you, I guess it, d- it doesn't matter to you. Does it matter to you whether that's, oh, there's a bull market in coal or does it tell you anything about the commodity market? Is it just a sign that there's some consolidation? Some yeah, I think it's yeah, it's a sign that the the stronger players are. Um, there is there is a you know it just reminds everyone there is a future for the mining industry, <laughs> and which I, that's, that's, I laugh, but you know which people probably didn't which, feel like that. Yeah, which at some exactly. Point people. Um, and um, you know we are we are you know definitely nearer the bottom of the market than the top i mean you well you have to be careful about getting sort of short term optimistic suddenly the gold price goes up to 1250 or um iron ore bounces up to 50 dollars or whatever and suddenly people think that they've sort of caught the bottom of the market and that they're brilliant they've made loads of money um and rick rick rule calls it you know confusing a bull market for brains so um 
you have to be careful. One one definite risk is that when you get a tick up in the gold price like that, all the producers will come out and just dilute everyone and issue equities to try and repair their balance sheets mm-hmm. and buy assets by bit you know, essentially flooding the market with new shares. So which looks great if, you know, the share price has maybe doubled in the last six months, but actually if you look at it over ten years, companies like Barrack are still, you know, abs- the share price has been trashed. So in terms of are those companies, are the large gold miners, for example, buy and hold investments, um, can you buy them now and be confident that they'll ride up the gold price? I mean, I'd be pretty skeptical of that. Uh, it's a good point because not many people think, I wouldn't think many people think that you have to consider the capital structure of a company before you invest in it. But I saw that time and again in Australia that especially at the smaller end of the market, these companies don't have access to capital markets. They're not going to borrow from the banks. Banks aren't interested. They can't issue debt. Yep. The, the big companies can, but the small ones can't. So the share price is the way they raise money. And if you're a shareholder, you have to accept that yep. they might dilute you in order to raise more capital to stay in business. But yep. you're just betting that in the long run it's going to be worth it. But yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at Barrett, companies like Barrick and Newmont, they, in the last gold bull market, they absolutely failed to um, perform as well as gold on the mm-hmm. way up. And then they did spectacularly worse than gold on the way down. No so, leverage on the way up and it, the wrong kind on the way down. Yeah. So people say, oh, you know, back gold's, uh, you know, doubled in the, since November, December. That What a fantastic investment. You mentioned it, though, that the, the big news story a couple of weeks ago, not the big one, but in the regulatory filings where they're obliged to disclose what they've been investing in in the previous quarter, yeah. everyone jumped on it and said, George Soros bought Barrick. Yes. Uh, so gold had a great first quarter and Soros loaded up on Barrick. Yeah. You think you got that one wrong? Uh, I think, I think. I mean, Soros is clearly a fascinating investor, but I think with, especially with him, with his fund management group, you've got to be careful about um, reading too much into it. I mean, it's a bit like with uh, Warren Buffett buying into Apple, as you know, then it turns out it wasn't his decision at all, it was, it was some other guy. So I think, I mean, I was looking at a company yesterday, a, th- a thread-making company called Coates Group, which is 11% owned by Soros. And, you know, it's always a, it's always a good... Uh, this sort of stamp of confidence to, you know, see those guys involved in a stock, but you can't, you can't just simply if you if you just follow people like uh, George Soros into every investment he made, you'd be kind of you'd just be tripping over yourself. Yeah, and it it's like sort of it's trying to drive by looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, exactly. It, it I don't know. It's interesting and it's good copy for headline writers, but. You know, knowing what somebody did last quarter with their money sh- yeah. shouldn't really give you a big trading advantage yeah. for the next quarter. Yeah, exactly. Or else they wouldn't tell you. I mean, if they didn't, they certainly didn't tell anybody ahead of time they were doing that. Well, also his portfolio would be so complex. I mean, it may be, maybe that he just simply had to buy that he want. You know, some portfolio manager a couple of rungs below him may have decided to buy some gold equities yeah. um, t- as a sort of hedge against a totally separate currency trade they had in the other direction. Right. So, you know, to, I mean, if he came out and gave a big speech about how gold was going to the moon, I mean, again, I'd say probably just best to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, since we're on the subject of Soros and things he's saying, yeah. uh, let me ask you one more thing. And then I genuinely will let you talk about whatever you want to talk about. I read a story in today's journal, Wall Street Journal. Uh, he 
he said two things that were interesting. One, he worried that China was a bigger problem than people expected, that the debt that had accumulated there was a, a major impediment to their growth and that they were had some structural problems, which is, of course, a big probably a big part of the commodity store. Maybe not as big as it used to be, but Chinese demand has always been one of those things people talk about. Yeah. The other thing he said, which I wanted to ask you about, is uh, he said Brexit would lead to the disintegration of the of the European Union. <laughs> yeah. But, but that he didn't think it would happen. Right. So I, I ask everybody this because it's the thing everybody talks about right now. But any, anything to add? Any interesting observations, comments well, on... On the European Union, I mean, I think Soros is... Um, by his own admission, is extremely politically uh, vested. He has mm. very strong political views of his own. He funds like a lot of political groups, and he's by no means a sort of independent financier. I mean, when Warren Buffett comes out and says that he thinks Donald Trump has got a decent chance of becoming president, then I think that that's interesting because uh, he he's a pretty more or less a politically neutral guy. But Soros has got has you know always supported the European Union and mm. um, has got us is very much vested. So um, they're his views, and yeah. presumably he won't be voting in the referendum. I don't know where he's domiciled. Did you know I was telling uh, somebody else earlier today? I I can vote in the referendum. Oh, you are you voting? Are you registered? Well, I think so. I I've I registered on the sixth when the website was still working. Yeah. And it didn't ask me for any identification whatsoever. Okay. So I had to enter my my telephone number, my street address, and the grounds on which I was applying yeah. for, uh, to register or registering. Uh, so technically, I'm a Commonwealth citizen who's currently resident in the UK okay. because I'm an Australian, Australian. citizen. Yeah, yeah, of so course. That, that, uh, according to the rules, yeah, that's apparently, fine. if you're a Commonwealth citizen resident in the UK, yeah. Then, uh, then you can vote. So you'll be voting. Is, yeah. I don't know. We'll see if I get a ballot or if they, they... But they didn't ask me for any proof that I was an Australian citizen. So right. if that might be part of the process. Yeah, I suspect G4S just come out with a figure that suits them anyway. The guy, do you know G4S? Yeah. They're, they're kind of Tory party-funded uh, contracting firm oh, right. who kind of like sort out the Olympics and they run the prisons and they kind of like run the underground and build the train stations and basically do everything in Britain, including counting votes. And so I suspect they just make up a number depending on what the Prime Minister told them to do. <laughs> you know, I would say that's cynical, but I, it was either Mark Twain or somebody else said uh, if, if it was important, they wouldn't really let you vote on yeah. it. You know, there's, a, there's that sneaking suspicion that did they let one get away here where where they're actually going to let people make a decision? Well, it's a bit like the Scottish referendum. You had a uh, you had a very narrow victory for uh, remaining in the in the union. Yeah. And then well, I think it was just a couple of months later, you had general election yeah. and all but one MP in Scotland was SNP. I mean, yeah. the, the most outlandish landslide. So, you know, maybe that was a in response to the referendum result but it's pretty amazing that you could have two such strikingly different election results in the same mm. so near to one another yeah well that's a good one um all right we've got six minutes so uh they're all yours and there can be two or three or four and with half. the i was in canada last week went to go and look at a mine oh, iron course. ore mine in labrador 
Um, so, which is a company we've discussed previously called Champion Iron, yeah. which is quite interesting. Uh, well, very interesting. It's essentially a um, an Australian guy called Michael O'Keefe, who was uh, he was chairman of Glencore's Australian business, um, and he then founded Rivsdale. You remember Rivsdale Mining from yeah. the Australia days? So he founded a coal company in Mozambique, took it up, I think, from uh, twenty two cents to sixteen dollars twenty. Oh, I think made goodness. some people a lot in about five or six years. Sold out to Rio Tinto, the very top of the market. Anyway, he's he's now gone up to Labrador, and there was an iron ore mine there which was uh, built for. Uh, well, the company paid. It, it was so, it was sold in two thousand eleven for five billion dollars. The company that bought it sunk another two billion dollars into the mine, and uh, basically failed to get it to work. And uh, the assets entered um, went into bankruptcy proceedings up there, and he bought them off the government for $10 million, so it's a seven... How does that happen? That, that Not that the investment itself was a bad idea, but how do you spend $2 billion yeah. and, and fail to produce the asset? Well, it's the, it's the mining industry pursuing the same old game of they try to lower... Um, in the down market, they try... Rather than pulling back production um, or idling assets and waiting it out, they are all on a pretty short term, you know, management and their debt stru- their funding structures are all on quite a short term horizon. So the inclination is always to try and lower costs by increasing production. So essentially, this mine could work perfectly well as a, as a relatively small iron ore mine. But as the iron ore price kept falling, they um, got into a game of sort of trying to chase costs lower by constantly expanding production. So their production target just went through the roof. And essentially, the more, the deeper they got into sort of loss-making territory, the bigger the expansion <laughs> plans became. Make which, it up on volume is the yeah, old exactly. old so, And it's a sort of microcosm for what the whole industry does. So, you know, this is, it's exactly what Rio Tinto and BHB have done as well. It's just that they, they're the sort of last one standing. So this is a very good example of someone who didn't, you know, that company was an American company, Cliffs Natural Resources, who didn't make it to the end and got crushed by Rio. So um, they were not, but, but by the iron ore market. Right. So it's a $7 billion asset there, which he is then picks up for $10 million, um, 10 million Canadian. So under, you know, just, just an astonishing um, deal he's got. And yeah. we went and had a look around and... Uh, you know, there's just, uh, I mean, just the equipment there alone is, is amazing. Just looking around the, you know, there's just lines of Caterpillar trucks, yeah. which each one is worth considerably more than he paid for the entire asset. It's also almost, it's genetically impossible for a man to look at heavy construction equipment and not get excited. <laughs> it's just for something about it. We look at it and go, "Wow, that's cool." It's quite amazing. It's quite. It was an amazing spot, it was, and it's sort of right up quite in, uh, you know, quite northern Canada. So it's sort of pretty not, icy. Not an there. area you'd normally think about as a sort of a hotbed for, for for mining. No mining assets. No. I mean, well, for maybe like nickel and yeah metals, but but for iron ore, that's the first I've heard of it. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a big. What's quite interesting is it's actually between a large Rio Tinto iron ore mine and a large uh, ArcelorMittal iron ore mine. Oh, okay, so and there they, is a lot of Well, both of those have kept running, but it's sort of ambit. Rio have been trying to sell their uh, 
that that's called IOS Iron Ore Company of Canada, which is owned by Rio. They've been trying to sell it unsuccessfully because they wanted three billion, um, even though they you know at the same time as they were crushing the iron ore price. Yeah, they were trying to sort of sell that so on. So obviously that didn't work out, and they've been left with it. So that's that mine is very much on the brink. ArcelorMittal obviously need the iron ore for their steel, so. It's diff- there's not much transparency on their mining costs. It's difficult to know whether they're making money. Both right. those mines are cutting back, so he's going into the a- area at a great time. You know, he's he's paid very little, yeah. Um, and other people are sort of pulling out of the area. Sounds good. And you had a good trip. I mean, you you were excited about the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's just to make. I don't think there aren't many. I mean, same in. People at the moment are talking about you know property prices coming down in the event of a Brexit, a Brexit vote or whatever. People and you look at um, what you if you imagine the sort of bargains you might get in property or something. But I think that the mining is one of the few industries where you get such an outlandish volatile swing for you know the seven billion dollar asset being sold for ten million just four four years later. Yeah, it's 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 like you, you mentioned Rick and and Michael. It's 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 hard. There's something about human nature that makes it hard for people to pay attention to stuff that they don't want to pay attention to. So out of sight, out of mind. Everything's crashed. Not interested. Mining sucks. Terrible business. High cost. Massively dependent on commodities. Currency risk. All these things. So you just ignore it. And the, and then the smart people. That's exactly when they're paying attention. Exactly. When there's no one else to compete yeah. with. And he's moved He's moved his whole family from Sydney to Montreal. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, he's right up there. And the, he's taken a whole load of journalists. He took a whole load of journalists up there. Yeah. And, you know, even even sh- just showing everyone this enormous uh, mine he's got, you know, everyone's still very skeptical. They say, well, you know, the price needs to come up a lot before it's going to work and blah, blah, blah. Everyone's very skeptical. So, um, you know, you could, whereas I've been sort of writing about that, uh, what he's actually reported that he was going to buy that mine sort of about 18 months ago, long before he did. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, you can, you can, if you pay attention, you can see these people moving at the bottom of the market. And everyone, you know, it's almost guaranteed that people will trustily ignore it. Yeah. Um, and it's only once they kind of hear that their mate has kind of doubled his money and something that they suddenly become interested. What's that now? What, yeah. Tell me more. Everyone jumps in. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it there uh, for the day. That's Alex Williams from the Global Mining Observer and Money Week. Alex, thanks, man. Cheers. If you like what you're hearing on today's podcast, do two things. First of all, go to SoundCloud, look for Capital and Conflict, and then follow us. You'll be notified every time a new podcast is up. Secondly, if you're downloading us or listening to us on iTunes, rate the podcast. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Hopefully it's good. Go to iTunes.com, look for Capital and Conflict, and rate the podcast. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, It's been a while. I've got a guest today. Uh, And in fact... I've made a mistake. I realize I'm looking across at him, and I should have hit record about 15 minutes ago because you've missed the part where we talked about saltwater crocodiles and the mm. the assorted history of Port Douglas in Australia and the, the era of credit booms in the 1980s. But my guest on today's Capital and Conflict show is an old friend from Australia, Vern Gowdy. How are you going, Vern? I am well, Dan. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. That's good. I, you look well. Thank you. Yeah, mm. I told Vern it's, it's probably just the black that's slimming, but... Uh, what do you think of London? I mean, you, you're on the Gold Coast. You you 
grew up there, you lived there, hmm. you retired there, but you're here in London for the summer with your wife. You've got a daughter that's here. What does it look like uh, financially? Just what are your observations uh, walking around? Expensive. Yeah. Yeah, and, but that may be because we're staying in Chelsea Sloan Square. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that that would be it. <laughs> that could be it. But uh, every second car is a Range Rover or a Porsche, and yeah. uh, and the real estate prices. I look in the window, and I got to. I have to keep doubling them for Australian dollar relevance. But uh, that's right. You just go. I don't believe it. You know, three million pounds for a little two bedroom place. You know, it's yeah. um, and that's six million Australian dollars, and you go, wow. So there's, uh, it, it's part of that disconnect that you, you know, and then you read about what's happening in the in the bond market where, you know, Swiss, Switzerland's doing 13-year bonds at zero, yeah. um, and then you have this asset price deflation on the other side of the equation. So uh, inflation, I mean, um, you know, yeah. where you've got deflation that seems to be happening in the, the broader European economy, yeah. but this asset price inflation and it's just yeah i've I've found where all that central banker money's gone mate it's gone into properties in sloan square you know it reminds (laughs) me exactly of australia while i was there from you know between 2004 and 2015 that you have this huge influx of capital from overseas that is into the local property market Mm -hmm. uh partly as capital flight so in australia's case a lot of it was chinese capital some of it was just um, a credit boom from the from the banks in Australia or yes. investors and negative gearing. Mm. But it, it does feel similar to me, uh, which is eerie because uh, I'll let you tell this story. But Vern and I were talking before he came on. Vern published a book late last year in Australia called The End of Australia, which made a familiar argument to some of you who read The End of Britain argument. But obviously it was about Australia and Australia's financial conditions which were unique in Mm -hmm. the 2000s with the commodities boom and the credit boom and the rise of China. But um, why don't you you fill in the listeners about what that book was about and and why you think uh, it resonated with the Australian public late last year and then again earlier this year. Earlier this year. I... I think it res well. It was about just the the credit build up in the system and and where that's gone and and you can see it in in Sydney Melbourne property prices. You know that they, they I don't think that the extent of what London is, but you know people are just going wow. How how are our children ever going to afford to get into this this market? And so it was really just detailing or chronicling how over the last fifty years um, there's been this massive debt build up in the system that has then fed into the broader economy, which has given us this so-called economic growth. But it's all been generated from the fact that people have been prepared to go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And so, and now our, you know, government has, you know, we, we had a a clean balance sheet. You know, there was no debt um, there in 2007, and now we're um, rapidly adding to that with um, with more debt accumulation, budget deficits, which is a story you see being played out around the world. So I think it resonated with people because people just felt that they that something just wasn't right, that there was an artificiality about all this. And when the mining boom came off, mm-hmm. you started to see those townships that were, that were um, the, the property prices were significantly increased because of that boom, yeah. were, were, were deflating. And so I, th- I think people started to just pick up on the the subtleties of what was happening around them, and um, and what and and I, I could put together the pieces of the puzzle for them, and show them 
how all this is being played out and the fact that I don't think it's sustainable. You yeah. know, the, the, that what we've had is just a, a phenomenal period in, in history that's, that, and, and, it's a, and it's a well-said thing. It's been a debt and demographic phenomena. Yeah, and um, I wrote something in Daily Reckoning in Australia earlier this week that, and quoting Bill Gross uh, from um, from Janus Capital, you know, that basically the last forty years has been something like a five or six sigma event, you know, and he said the likelihood of this, it's more likely this event will be repeated on Mars than it will be on Earth. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's just you know, and and that kind of puts it into context. But but we've come to believe this is some sort of, this is normal. Yeah. But in fact, in the in the history of financial markets, it's it's abnormal. So, I think probably giving that clarity to people reading that that they they instinctively knew, but um, yeah, just putting this some numbers down and saying, hey, and and it's to me, it's just going to be the end of Australia as as we know it. That this that this credit growth and um, expected economic growth is not going to be there. Yeah. Um, in the future so start making some adjustments now you know start trying to if, if governments won't live within their means how about in households do because that's what you'll be forced to do at some point when whenever the reset button is hit yeah well I want to ask you about that because I was writing about you today in uh, Capital and Conflict and I was giving the history of our uh, business relationship and I said and I think this is the right word I said that when we first met and I asked you all right, we can probably do a newsletter together, but what's your investment position? What are you going to tell people to do with your money? And I, the things you said at the time were that the correction in the market could be as as large as 90% in stocks mm-hmm. and that it was a 100% cash position. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd, I'd venture to say that now people would take that more. Most people would, would listen to that now, whereas at the time it – they wouldn't have because they just they didn't the idea of a debt deflation where cash becomes more valuable and cash as an investment position uh, becomes preferable to owning bonds. Um, it just wasn't the case seven or eight months ago. But you've since then you've launched uh, that new newsletter and how are people reacting to that investment advice and is that still the the same investment advice you're giving to people generally right now? Uh, it is still a, still the advice. Uh, in Australia, we were a little bit when we first launched um, a couple of years ago. That that previous that other it was that long ago, wasn't it? Sorry, it was, I, I, it was two or two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah you're right. We spoke. Right. Uh, it, we were still getting four four and a half percent for our money oh, back right. then. So holding a cash position wasn't too onerous. You know, the the, the people were still getting a, re, a a reasonable return in comparison to the Northern Hemisphere, which was, you know, bumping along at zero or thereabouts. Um, so that was, but as rates have come down, um, then that's been harder for people to, to hold on if you're a retiree, as people in Britain and the and um, Europe and the US would know, you know, getting point something on your money is, um, it's pretty hard to live on. You need a big pile. Yeah. So that it's testing people's patience because the market correction started to happen last year, but then that was that correction was corrected, yeah. and it, it went it went back, um, and it got the wobbles again earlier this year. 
But so that that expected correction yeah. um, the, ha, has not yet happened. But I, I still believe it will. Um, will it be to the extent of ninety percent? As I said at the time, mathematically, I can show you how that can happen. If you have a compression in PE and a reduction in earnings, then there is the there is the mathematical case that uh, markets could in the US compress by up to ninety percent. Now, ninety percent sounds dramatic, but it's not without precedent. Yeah. It, it, it has happened in in the 30s. It's happened in Japan, and it's happened in the Nasdaq in the in the early 2000s. So, it's not a, a, a wild number you can I've plucked out of the air. I, I, mathematically, I can prove it. So, um, will it be to that extent? I, I don't know, but you know anything plus fifty is not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, because so, because once you lose fifty percent of your money, you you've got to make a hundred yeah. to, to to recover. So my argument is, why not step aside, yeah. wait for it to go that way, and then pick up the hundred on the way up, rather yeah. than just to get back to square. Why not why not make one two rather than than half one, if you. Follow my logic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so, um, so so the cash is 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 tough, but there's, but I, I don't think it's going to be as tough as you know when when it happens. And if you go back to 08, 09, and I was in practice then as a, a financial planner, and uh, you know it was re- people were going were shell shocked. You know yeah. they they just weren't expecting it. I expect the next one will be far far worse. So the the psychology of that is going to be really tough to to comprehend and um that's why it's it's i think it's just going to be it's this is the lesser of all evils and we're in a we're in a marketplace in my opinion where it's not he who makes the most wins it's he who loses the least yeah. wins yeah. and so yes i'm not getting much return on our money because the australian interest rates have now come down to 1.75 right which again i think i t- might have I, Part of my thesis at the time was that eventually we'll see rates under two percent, and um, that's gradually happened. Yep. Um, and I also took a position in U.S. cash at the time because yeah. the Australian dollar was about a dollar five against um, the U.S. dollar, and we're now seventy-four. So again, it was a wow. ca- it was a cash position that has now paid off thirty something percent yeah. in in value. So I haven't earned anything on the cash there, but when I convert it back to Australian dollars, so. There's still opportunities out there, but I just think it's 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 basically still being cautious because the market is overvalued by every measure I look at, um, and you know, so it, yes, it can go more, become more expensive, but that doesn't mean um, I've got to be stupid enough to chase it. I think that's an important warning that we we probably can't repeat often enough for people because I've been surprised since really since 2008 at how successful central banks have been at delaying what we all think ought to happen, mm-hmm. whether it's the you know the liquidation of debts or the bankruptcy of insolvent firms or just the natural correction in stock and bond prices. They've, they have done well with that, and it's, but it's taken them really extraordinary measures to achieve that result. And part of what's happened for investors is it's just taken the urgency out of thinking about what's really going on. It doesn't feel like it's as risky now as it was then. But it's starting to feel that way again for me. And I think for mm-hmm. for Russell Napier, who we were talking about earlier, Russell's one of the keynote speakers at our conference this year in October. And he used an expression I thought was really good. He said, 
if there's a, a, a drawdown in the stock market or a bear market, and if it's a big one, it's not your stocks or your portfolio that's at risk. It's your savings that are locked in the stock market. The mm-hmm. people have thought mm-hmm. of the stock market as a savings account with a really high interest rate. And it and it tends psychologically for them to underestimate how much that money is at risk. And and I think your point and Russell's point was that money is at risk. And the people who have prevented this this day of reckoning have admitted to us they don't they don't really know what they're doing. And they don't know really how it ends, and so, you know, I, I, I think investors, there's, if there were a time to prepare for that and think, what would I do? What's the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. and what would I do in that scenario? You want to do it now. You don't want to <laughs> wait until everyone's asking the same question because because by then you're yeah it's you're, way too late. You're going to be so far back at, from the exit. It's not funny. Yeah, and uh, you'll be just crushed in the right. But what you're saying yeah, about the, it, the the delaying, you know, how, how the central bankers have been able to, yeah, defy yeah. what we think is, is sort of like the Foreman Ali fight, you know, <laughs> is that Foreman was, he just brought this formidable punch to the to the fight and everyone thought he was going to win. And it's a bit like the central bankers, they bought, they bought this arsenal to this fight yeah. and they've got money printing, they've got low interest rates they've got they'll, they'll buy their own ETFs in Japan they'll buy corporate bonds in Europe and they've got this formidable force there but I think the market is sort of rope-a-doping them yeah. is it just going back and say okay give me some more is that the best you've got and they're punching away and they're punching away but they're deflating they're, yeah. they're, 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 they've got to be sitting there scratching their heads and going what can we do and the reality is they they can't do anything. It's they're, they're they're reactive. They're not proactive. Yeah. And so um, at some point, this, this, the uh, the round's going to go ding. I'd know be at the tenth round or the eleventh round in a fifteen round fight, and soon soon enough, um, the market Ali is going to come out, and um, they're going to be tired. Yeah. And they're just not going to be able to do it. And I see. I saw that interview he did with Parkinson. You know, he said. Wasn't a good time to get tired, George. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, great. it was a great line, and yeah. and I think it's going to be the market's going to be the same. I think they've been rope doping the the central bankers, yeah. And I think we're going to see a flurry of punches at some point that the they're not just not going to be able to respond to. Well, I, I want to ask you about the family wealth stuff. Uh, stuff. I want to ask you about the family wealth project, but I want to I want to plant a seed with you because uh, on that idea of markets eventually landing a punch. A decisive punch against Mario Draghi, and uh, actually, I shouldn't personalize it because I, don't, I no. don't want Janet Yellen to get punched. No, but the, the <laughs> idea is can, can yeah, metaphorically market, right. I mean, will market forces eventually overwhelm intervention? Um, well, it has a hundred percent knockout record. Right, markets it, markets have never not lost a fight. <laughs> that's true, but I, that's a good point. You know, I hadn't thought of that because well, I've thought of it, but Tim Price and I were working on this idea last year. And, and we came up with the phrase financial martial law, that if central bankers don't like the market reaction to what they're doing, and if they can't suppress the signals that markets are sending about central bank policies, which is the gold price, which is bond yields, which is the S&P 500, the only way to really, at this point, the only way to, to really prevent those signals from telling people what's really going on is, is to suppress markets from working, to, to, to just impose 
what we called financial martial law. So you'll have the modern equivalent of a bank holiday. Instead of shutting the banks down, you say, uh, you know, stock market's only open Tuesdays and Wednesdays between 12 and 2. But then and the market will still, will still function. It'll just be a different functioning market. That People just, you know, it'll be artificial. It's everything. So there's still, yeah, it's like not making decisions is making decisions. Yeah. So markets, yeah, yeah. even if they impose martial law, the markets will have still won the day because they... They forced that action. They forced that action. Yeah. I, and I think that's the point. We, we reached the same conclusion on that, that um, it doesn't really matter what happens once that happens because uh, your freedom of action financially yeah. will, will have been restricted by then. So, hmm. so you, need to, you need to kind of get ahead of the story, think about what they might do, and then decide whether you want to, uh, to plan for that and do something. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing that talking now about family wealth. This is how we originally met, that you were mm-hmm. a, a subscriber to uh, Bonner Family, family Office, Office yes. Bill Bonner's mm-hmm. uh, Family Wealth product. And uh, you'd written a book for, you have three daughters, right? That's correct. You'd written a book for your daughters called Parents Gifts of uh, Knowledge. Knowledge. That's correct. And you decided to start a family office Mm -hmm. Uh, to manage your wealth and and teach your children about money. So for readers or listeners who who aren't familiar with that, can you tell us how that started and and how it's going now? It started after we sold a business in 2008. Um, And I was thinking about the education of our our children, financial education, because the, 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 the schooling system doesn't teach anything about handling money. You know, um, the, the, it's just not geared for that. So um, it was my wife said to me, "What? I had this time on my hands. Why don't you sit down and write a, get it all out of your head, what you've learnt, and write a book to the girls about handling money responsibly. And this is after almost three decades in financial planning, Correct. right? Correct. So I sat down and it was it was one of the easiest books I've ever I've, I've written because it was just I, was, I had this picture of the girls there and this is what I'd say to them if I was no longer um, uh, mentally or physically capable of being there to do that for them. And it was really about just responsible management of money and what to look out for and and just to make you know, prudent decisions and, and how to approach things from a, a simple perspective, you know. So if you don't understand something, don't do it. You know, if, if someone can't explain an investment to you in a couple of minutes and then they obviously, it's too complex, walk away. So so I, it was simple things like that about how to budget and do things um, in, a, yeah, in a responsible manner. Uh, so that's where the book came from yeah. because um, at, at some point they were going to inherit hopefully, what, what we, we had accumulated and, and, and built on. And so then it came about that, that Bill launched his uh, family office project, and I went, wow, that's exactly the sort of um, concept that I'm looking at, So or for. So, and that was in 09, and, and it's really been a, an ongoing process since then because you can only move this forward, this, this engagement of, of family in, in, in the financial uh, aspects of your life, um, at a pace that they're ready for because yeah. so f- back then they were you know in their teens and so you know it wasn't didn't quite resonate with them but now that they're in their 20s and and you know one living in sydney one living in melbourne another one moving to uh, one living in sorry one sydney london now and another one moving to london that they've had to manage their own finances you know right. they're, they're, you know the rents and you know and they, they're aware of superannuation their retirement accounts and all that so 
they've been more engaged in the process. And so we've been running um, annual family office meetings and just talking about investment philosophies, um, talking about, you know, um, estate planning and, you know, the and what's going on in their life and what the whole idea of the money is is to actually invest in them to right. to so they can lead and i mean this in the best possible rich lives as far as you know rich in experiences qualitative qualitative yeah so um and that's what it's about and then they, they at some point they they will be the custodians of the of the money so the the mo- the, the mindset and there's a there's a saying in australia it's called ski you know, retirees, you know, spend kids' inheritance. Well, you know, and that's a predominant school of thought. Yeah. Um, ours is that, no, that we're not consumers of our wealth. We're actually custodians. And so it's a completely different mindset. So when you have that thinking, you don't touch the core. You don't touch the capital. You you try to use the, the income from it where possible to reinvest back into to making the, the family a, 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 putting in a stronger position. So is this... Um I've, I think it's such an interesting subject for personal reasons, which I'll get to in a minute. But I wanted to ask about the mechanics of it in as much as you're willing to share them. Because I've heard different offices work different ways. Is this sort of collectivizing the family's assets, its liquid wealth, its non-liquid wealth, and then democratizing the decision-making about how to manage that? So everybody's at the table, everybody gets a vote and says, Here's how we're going to invest the money. So and so wants to open a business. I want to buy a car. I mean, is it in your family office? Does it is it work at that level, or did you have a different goal for it, where you're just sort of generally teaching financial principles to, to your children? It's I suppose it's a, a step process, Dan. Is it? Yeah, it's initially teaching the principles um, so that they can be engaged in. It, it, step by step rather than just going hey this is what we're going to you know how do we invest this money well they don't have any investing experience so the, so we will democratize the, the the investing process eventually but at this stage it's a dictatorship um, because based on experience though, based right? on like experience you, but I, I share with them why I'm doing it and sure. and, and, and the, do they uh, argue with you have you had any disagreements yet about no what no, to do with the money no yeah. no no okay. they're, they're in agreements in fact what we did last last Christmas is we gave them each a gift of X dollars to in to make an investment um, on the proviso that they they researched the investment mm. and then they could come back with with reasons as to why and and then you know we'd sit down and go yep okay here, we'll release the money and part of the part of the the thinking was I hope they lose it yeah um, because it, it's what I call school fees you know if they lose a small amount <laughs> I'd rather them lose a small amount than a big amount you'll learn far more from your losses than you do from your your gains yeah um, so you know I, I subscribe to the bad luck first we'll have good luck later process so that's one of the the, the 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 real tangible ways of doing it and to their credit each of them has come back to and said dad i don't think it's the right time at present i haven't found the i haven't i've looked at a company but i'm not quite sure of it and another one is now reading a book uh from um benjamin graham you know yeah uh, yeah um so yeah all, and, and no one bought facebook no one bought netflix no, no one bought google no one bought apple no no wow no, they've they've sat back, and maybe that's my influence. Yeah. Um, but they've sat back and said, no, we would like rather 
um, wait and see, and we don't think the time's right. Um, so yeah, you know, for a variety of reasons, they've they've come back, which which is good. They're they're at least thinking about it, and and you've got to have these practical experiences, otherwise you you, you bring. I, I saw it in, in when I was in practice. You know, people with a lot of money, they pass on or they lose their capacity to act for themselves. The kids come in, and really they've had no experience, and the money's invariably gets lost, which is like lotto winners, <laughs> yeah. you know, sporting stars who have come from, you know, poverty to, to great riches, but it's just not there anymore. Um, Lucas Neal, the Australian soccer yeah. fellow, saw him the other day, he's bankrupt, you know, and he yeah. had millions, tens of millions of dollars in his life, but he horse races, restaurants, you know. Well, was that was the second part of my question, instead of the mechanics of how they work, is how much are you fighting just human nature? And how much is, is it just a knowledge problem? And I'll, I'll put that in context. There's that famous expression or aphorism, of sort of three generations, right? So yeah. Rags to riches to rags. Mm. That that it's just not in our nature to to do anything but understand what what's in our immediate experience. So I've seen in my family, for example, uh, my father was an only child. Uh, I'm the youngest of 12, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my father was an only child, and his parents, I don't think they – they didn't inherit money, but they both owned businesses. And in fact, his mother probably did inherit a business. So it was in a, a department store in, in Dallas called Sanger Harris. This is in the you know 50s and 60s. Mm. And I think my dad's father was a lawyer for an oil company. So they did okay. And in fact, he had a trust. And they did well enough that uh, they sent up a trust fund for all his children to go to school. Now, I don't know if they expected that he would have <laughs> He would have that many children. And as the last one, obviously, I'm thankful that Mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it did him any favors, having Mm. looked back on it, because he lost it all. Mm. He made some some terrible investments. He bought a couple of airplanes. He was a very skilled man. He learned how to fly. He was a paramedic. Uh, He taught rhetoric and logic. And he opened a martial arts studio, you know, kind of a, a renaissance man. Which I suppose if you don't have to work and you have a lot of free time to study the things that you are interested in, you, you can indulge. You do that. Mm. But I can tell, too, it didn't, it didn't do him any favors, and it certainly didn't do my older brothers and sisters any favors because mm. I don't think they learned much about money. So we've all sort of had to learn the hard way. Yes. And, and I think even for the, for the older children it was worse because they expected that there would be money, mm-hmm. and they didn't get it. Yeah, and that's that's hurts. They, 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 so they had planned for it by mm-hmm. not doing anything, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then when it wasn't there, yeah, all that was left was some some recriminations. Mm-hmm. So so rather than what my grandmother had intended, that the money would be a springboard toward uh, education, mm-hmm. which people could, could lead a fulfilling, wealthy life in the sense that they did work that mattered and. And yeah. broaden their yeah. mind, it became a source of division mm-hmm. within the family. So that my question is: is you see that over and over and over again in history? Only rarely do you see the Rothschilds or families where they're able to preserve wealth mm-hmm. over multiple generations by by transferring from one generation to another really hard won lessons about money and finance. So are, are you sort of fighting human nature with this project, or is it just information? People just don't know enough. Oh, I, th- I think it's a combination of both. And uh, 
I think I will be fighting human nature long, long term, but I probably won't be here to see that, <laughs> see how that fight. Because I, I, yeah. I'm reasonably confident on progress to date that the, you know, the the three girls will be in a a good um, position to to manage wealth themselves. But as you then they have partners, they have families. It just becomes harder to to manage beyond that um so i'm really just looking at the the immediate okay future the you know one step at a time and then we'll deal with beyond that so you can have trusts in place you can have those structures but it it doesn't it doesn't help it it doesn't that doesn't matter if there's um if the relationships are, are fractured you know or or there's you know expectations built that aren't delivered upon so we work really, really hard on open communications and honesty. Mm. And so any of the money, if the girls have got a business plan, you know, and, and some of them, and one of them has, we sit down and say, okay, put the business plan down and we'll all sit down and discuss it. And that's not to pick it to pieces. That's because, you know, there's five, another four brains can add input into mm-hmm. this and maybe think of something else. And so it's meant to be a collective of building up rather than, bringing down so it's a it's a contribution um and so we're we're really working hard on that on that communication and and building the bonds there of trust because if you don't have trust the, the whole thing will will fall apart yeah because they'll always be second guessing oh what does what do they want or you know they've got this angle or that and it's destructive and that's where it'll fall apart yeah well you know as you said you've got uh, one of them one of your daughters lives in london another is is moving here and I think it's great that you've done this before that because I can tell you know I'm from a small town but I've lived in cities for most of the last 20 years and in general even in, especially in Australia where most of the population is urbanized once people are out of the house or if they get out of the house it's it's kind of an atomistic financial existence maybe your parents helped you maybe they didn't but you're kind of on your own and uh, what I've found in the last four or five years when we talk about this idea in conferences or in newsletters, uh, it gets more feedback than almost any other thing that we write about. Really? Yeah, I, and I, it makes sense to me because I, uh, it's it's the distinction you made earlier between being rich and being wealthy, or I make the distinction between money and wealth. Mm-hmm. Money's not wealth; mm-hmm. it's just what you use to yeah. to buy things you want. Wealth is. As qualitative, it's mm-hmm. it's having relationships that you can depend on. It's having good relationships with your children. It's having friends. It's knowing people that are interesting who you know challenge you. It's a lot of things, and, and some of them are subjective. But um, I find that most of the people that read what we write or listen to the to the podcast are far more interested at this point in their life in building that kind of wealth. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're interested in preserving their capital yes. and not having it wiped out by mm. a monetary experiment. But they're they're worried about their children and their grandchildren mm-hmm. and what they're going to do in a world that's where all these things are going wrong. Um, and I mention all that because if you're interested, um, uh, Vern's book, A Parent's Gift of Knowledge, is available through some of what we do, the Self yes. Bank Private Briefing, mm-hmm. to premium readers. So. You can send me a note uh, to daniel at moneyweek.com and I can tell you uh, about uh, that book and how to get it. Uh, But Vern, I also take some of the things he's written in his weekly updates. He's got, you've got two services, right? That's correct. The Gaudi Family Wealth, which is the family wealth Mm -hmm. product, and then the Gaudi Letter, which is 
more of a macroeconomic okay. investment market. Yeah. Mm. So I read those every week. I quote from them in the South Bank private briefing. Um, but if you're if, if the family wealth aspect of uh, what Vern's discussing interests you, send send me a note and I'll tell you more about it. But yeah, I, I've said that um, you were the first one to bring that uh, idea to me, and I, I I wouldn't say I was skeptical; it just hadn't occurred to me. But I think mm. maybe the the more uncertain the the financial situation is, and because of the demographic thing that you mentioned earlier, that people are at or near retirement age, mm-hmm. and they're just wondering, all right, I'm okay, uh, but I'm worried about my kids. Is that do you get more feedback from from uh, children or from parents with with the family wealth product? Oh, it's it's more the parents, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because engaging that you know children, it's 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 a diffi- It can be difficult. And and some. Do you of have them, any advice the, for people on how to do that? Because you've done uh, it and you seem to have succeeded in doing it. How, how did you do that? Oh, being in the industry, being in the money, the investment game. You know, yeah. it, it was just talk around the table not, not you know you know you got to buy this share or that share it was really about um relating maybe client experiences coming mm-hmm. home and say ah oh, i saw bill blogs today and you know you you know this is what happened in their family or this is what's happening you know and, and I, I still remember telling them about one client who was in my office and he was in tears mm-hmm. because um he was a very wealthy fa- man and uh, he he had made a lot of money but and he'd given and he'd sport his children. He's and his adult children had now become addicted to dad giving them money, and it was a, now a case of too little, too late. He wanted to impose some some structure, you know, restrictions on. You just can't, you know, because it starts off with a, a ten dollar, you know, ten dollars for a whatever, and then it morphs into you know, can I have five thousand, ten thousand, fifty, you know, and they just it just becomes parasitic, and so he decided to put the foot down. And um, the backlash was, you're not going to see your grandchildren now. Oh, my goodness. And he was just in tears. He said, what monsters have I created? Um, And so he was being held hostage, an emotional host. He was emotionally held hostage. And it was just heartbreaking. So I can remember recounting stories like this or, you know, yeah, or if people got it right, I th- you know, saying, oh, that was a clever move or, you know, th- they did this. So it was just our dinner talk. TV's always, TV was off and yeah. we sat. And You had dinner around the table. We had dinner around My the table. My goodness. That, well, that was, one of the, that was one of the beauties of, we, we lived in a little place called or Cairns, North Queensland. Yeah. And um, I was literally one CD right away from home and there was one traffic light. So within three minutes I could be... Um, uh, you know, one song away from home. So yeah. three or four minutes I was home. So you could work till, you know, six at night and still be home at five past six and yeah. and see how the kids were going and all that sort of thing. So it was it was one of the beauties of being in a smaller town is that uh, it was very good for family life. You also yeah. knew who your children were mixing with. Um, you know, it was a town of 120,000 people, but you, you, you knew who they were mixing with and that was also constructive. Yeah. Um, so you could just uh, be the invisible hand yeah. with that. So there's lots of little things that you do. And and our accountant, who was also a very good friend, we'd have him over for dinner. Yeah. Um, and 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 they loved Mark. So you know it was just great. He would sit down and talk about things as well, but not not cold technical stuff, but yep. storytelling. Yeah. Um, so it was. It, it's been an engagement for a long time, and it's just this little by little stuff yeah. that, that builds up. And so, and now you've got they've got this base knowledge, and 
it's interesting when they when uh, they first one of them first moved to Sydney and they, she was out you know she was working with this girl and she said well how about we go to lunch and this girl said can't she said why well, we got lunch time she said no 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 so I've got no money she said what do you mean you got no money she said well I've got to wait for for the my pay to come in next you know whenever it was going yeah. and that was just horrified Grace because she was always taught that you know you 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 do your savings yeah and she just couldn't understand that people didn't have savings or that they were just using their credit cards yeah. to do things because that was completely foreign to the what she'd been taught or she she believed a household ran how it ran yeah that was her understanding so so she's had you know that that's been good yeah so it sort of confirmed to them uh these things we've been talking about at the dinner table these stories i've heard yeah those aren't just yeah. about you know yeah. theoretical people this actually happens to people that's correct so it was it was a conscious decision i suppose by us to to do this but so how do you if you've if you've gone for you know if your children are and I, and I caught up with a, a fellow recently for a coffee in, in uh, on the Gold Coast, and he was asking me, you know, I've got these 40-year-old children who are, you know, and this guy had a significant amount of money, you yeah. know, um, tens maybe bordering on 100-odd million. So it was, a, it was a lot of money. And um, so he was saying, how do I turn this around, you know, because uh, there was a daughter who was married to a fellow who was not, um, so so good and yeah. with money and you know business has gone broke they'd bailed out all that sort of stuff and I didn't have any answers it's I mean is it isn't it's it so just too hard. late by then well yeah you know it's like trying to correct a tr- a forty year old tree you know and say I now want it to be upright it's been wind blowing in a certain direction yeah it, really the an arborist is going to have his job cut out trying to bring that back into an upright position it's so hard yeah to to change patterns you got to start them early you've got to bring your accountant over for dinner (laughs) and you've got to learn how to tell stories well yeah it's that's what worked for us yeah but you know and i and i'm and i'm so thankful we did yeah but it's been conscious decisions and that's what i wrote about this week was you know you you've got to consciously um you know Put put your children in a, in a fertile environment so they can they can grow and 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 take on ideas and and we travelled and yeah. that, that's something we again consciously did to expose them to other ways other cultures other lifestyles other ways of thinking or looking at things. I so. thought that word you I think you used it at least five or six times in your recent update. You used the word deliberate. Mm-hmm. That this isn't about sitting around a table and talking about how you feel about money. Communication is an important part, mm. but it's really important to be deliberate about what you're trying to achieve. Be specific, mm-hmm. and then don't you know? Don't make it a vague thing. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's like any goal. You know, if it's if it's just a wishy washy thing, then you yeah. You can't measure it at that point. Yeah, if you don't know what you're trying gone. to achieve. You're, you you can't say whether you did it or not. Hmm. Yeah, there's that old um, story about the 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 master archer. And, you know, there's a target in the tree. And he asked the first archer, what do you see? He said, I see clouds and leaves and that sort of thing. And he said, well, put your, put your bow and arrow down. And he gets the last one. And he said, what do you see? I said, target. He said, fire. You know, so if you, if you don't know what you're focusing on, you'll hit anything. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good point. You know, well, so, so you've really, yeah, you, you've got, if you, if you genuinely want your children to be financially literate, you want to build a, a household that is, you know, it's a loving household that it's got good open communication. Then you have to instill that culture, like a business. Yeah. You know, you have to build a culture. Yeah, that's and, a and good that, point. And and that can be part intuitive, but it's also got to be, you know, 
you know, from you. deliberate. Yeah. It's got to, it's got to be a, a, a chosen path. Yeah. And it doesn't happen by accident. Well, you're you know. here for three months, so so Great. will you come back and, and talk again when, when you've got some time? Dan, I can always come back Make and have a time. coffee with you, mate. No worries. Let me ask you one last question before we leave. Uh, I will see you again before uh, October 27th, 28th. Is that the date? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I'll, um, we'll be here till mid-late August, yes. Well, I'm going to see Vernon in London, but I will see him in Port Douglas in Australia in late October because our, uh, our mutual friend, Chris Sace at Port Phillip Publishing, is putting on a conference there, and I think the theme of the conference is the Great Repression. That's correct, yes. What's going to happen after this all hits the fan, you know? Yeah. We don't know when it's going to hit the fan and, and where it's going to splatter, but we know there's going to be an aftermath to this experiment or failed experiment in um, credit-funded growth. And if without giving the game away, do you do you have an idea yet of what, what you'll be speaking about at the conference? Um... I'll, I'll be making some guesstimates on, on what I think if I was mad enough to try and <laughs> the mad scientist within within the Eccles building in in, um, in the US, what I would do. And I think, yeah, I can see helicopter money. Yeah. Um, you know, is there going to be a, a sort of a repricing of gold? And there's a, there's a few things, but they, they won't they won't not fight. Yeah. You know, um, and that's something I read the other day. You know how many PhD economists are employed by the Fed? I would say between three and five hundred. Seven hundred and fifty. Oh my God! There's seven hundred and fifty of them, and they've all been pretty much indoctrinated. If you go yeah. back, uh, Yellen was a was a professor of economics. Yeah. Uh, Bernanke was. So they've all been schooled in this Keynesian thinking. So um, they're not going to give up a lifetime's work. So yeah. they will go back and they will find. They'll go and get some more test tubes, and they will pour eye of Newton, tongue of dog into it and do whatever they've got to do. Yeah. So to try and re- reprise these these um, glory days of the last 40 years, which can't be done. So I think we're going to see some really bizarre things done. In, f- in fact, in some ways, it's more dangerous to have earnest people running the financial system than crooks because earnest people genuinely, and I, I think it's probably true of most of the Yellens and Bernankes of the world, that as academics and theorists, they genuinely believe that they that they know what they're doing and that if they get it right, if they just get the right tinkering and the right policy, they're doing something positive for people. They're, they're making the world better. The crooks just want money. And, and, and as soon as there's no more money to loot or rob or bank accounts to plunder, they move to Paris or Geneva or Singapore, wherever rich, you know, wherever crooks mm. go to get away from the law, at least they're gone and, and then you can clean the system up. But it's the earnest people uh, who, who, who are think they're making the world better. Bill always calls them the world improvers. They're the ones that are committed to the death. And yeah, that's but if you're danger. earnest and misguided, that's dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that, it's it's that terrible is, for the rest of us. Honestly, you know, what what could be, if you want an alternative world, just close the doors on, on the and just say, listen, guys, it's all fire. How about we just let this market sort it out? Yeah. Seriously, I, I don't think it could be any worse than where they're taking us. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be unwieldy. It's gonna be ugly. It's gonna be volatile. It's gonna be everywhere. But yeah. ultimately, it's like water. It will find its own level. Yeah, and we'll go from there. But they can't allow that to happen because if you got that many people on your payroll, they've got to be doing something than saying, "Hey, how about we just let this thing run its course?" Yeah, because then they're out of work. Then they're out of work, and the, all their modeling and all their years of study. Are, so they're going to tinker this thing to death, and so then they're going to have to come up with 
okay, now what do we do? So it'll all yeah. be reactionary, yeah, um, and it'll be con- increasingly more desperate in yeah. its in the reaction. Um, so I think we're we're just going to. Well, I thought we'd already plumbed some le- pretty lows yeah. points, you know. But yeah. um, you know, was it ten trillion dollars already in the negative on sovereign bonds? Yeah, over ten and a half government, yeah. and then yeah, now some ratings, corporate yeah. we saw. And I saw the other day yeah. is a Japanese coupon on Toyota paying like point zero zero one basis mm-hmm. points. Just just no return for any risk. Yeah, it's just bizarre, and and that's why I, I what Bill Gross said about this being a five or six sigma event. Yeah. Um, and to put that into context is is that I think they said the GFC or the housing U.S. housing thing was about a three or four sigma. Yeah. You know, and and bear in mind, no property prices hadn't fallen unilaterally in America ever. Yeah. So that's how off the the radar. A I'm five gonna have or to six. bring I'm gonna have to bring Phil Anderson in, and we can talk about that. Yeah, you know he's Phil. in London. Is he? Uh, well, he will yeah. be here soon. Uh, Callum yeah. Newman's here as well. Okay. Callum and Phil, for those of you who don't know them. Mm work on a, a separate uh, publication in Australia. And Phil has a particular uh, th- uh, worldview on how the credit cycle works and, and mm-hmm. how it relates mm. to property. And I would say it's uh, uh, I would say it's almost diametrically opposed to what Vernon and I have discussed. But it's really like a parallel universe. It's not even yeah. in the same universe. It's, no, it, we're it's operating from different principles of, uh, of what money is, what credit is. But it's fascinating. It is. And, 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 and he's been good. He's, he's been great at it. He's been good at it, and and he's such a he's such a passionate believer in the in the GAN, yeah, principles and yeah. and and a devotee of it, and he's just so energetic about it. And, yeah, and yeah, he's he's he he picked the bottom here in London. He bought in '09, I think, ten yep. on the on the property cycle. So yeah, yeah, you know. All right. Well, I'll see if he's around. We can bring him in. But you, uh, why don't you come in after Brexit, and we can talk about uh, talk about the world. Yes then. or no. Oh, it's too long of a discussion. But I did find out that as a Commonwealth citizen, which I am because mm-hmm. I became an Australian citizen, okay. I've registered to vote. I'm allowed to vote. Can I vote? Or you've got to live here. I think you've got to be a resident, possibly. Well, maybe. Maybe that's it. Yeah, so. I don't want to vote in the Australian election. There's just the choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. Actually, there. I wonder if I have to vote in Australia. Oh. I mean, I know you have to if you're there, but as a non-resident citizen. I've just been so disappointed in yeah. in the the tone of the debate. It's Get in line. Just, <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> you know, oh. I, I, I'm a passionate Aussie, mate, and I tell you, it's just, oh, it's well, that's a whole other subject. Is, yes. is the political cycle as a reaction to what's happened economically, monetarily, and they're they're clearly related. Oh, absolutely, uh, in it's, some it's, profoundly important ways. But we'll save that it's a one reflection for on society. Time. It's it's yeah. our society, the the mood that's out there that's that's sort of creating this debate and yeah. or lack of it. Yeah. Mm. All right. Uh, this has been a pleasure. This is a Vern Gowdy from The Gowdy Letter in Australia and Gowdy Family Wealth. Again, Vern has written a great book, which I recommend, called A Parent's Gift of Knowledge about the idea of family wealth. Uh, I'll tell you more about that in Capital Conflict if you're interested. But uh, thanks for coming in for coffee and thanks for coming on the show. Great catching up with you, Dan. Cheers, Vern. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.